So uh, why don't you like state your name and what you do? So yeah, um, I'm Sean Allen. Until a couple months ago, I was the VP of engineering at Wallaroo Labs. There's a standing fan about seven feet away. I assume you, you're not hearing that. Um, I don't hear a standing fan. It does sound echoey. I, I have no non-echoey rooms. It's basically a couple large open spaces here in, in Brooklyn, right by the uh, right by the bridge. Sean held his laptop up to the window and showed me what I assume is the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, nice. Sean is also recovering from COVID. I I had all of the symptoms except for the the smell thing, but it was relatively mild. The highest my temperature ever got was 99.9. I felt like I had a bad case of the flu for the most part. Now I feel like I have a mild case of bronchitis. Hello and welcome to Co-Recursive. I'm Adam Gordon-Bell. Today, Sean shares a story of picking the right tool for a job. The tool he ends up picking will surprise you. What happened is Sean wrote a book about real-time data processing. The book is called Storm Applied, Strategies for Real-Time Event Processing. The details of Storm don't really matter here, except to know it's an Apache big data project. It is written in Clojure and runs on the JVM. What happened is after he wrote the book, a company called Wallaroo Labs hired him to build a system like Storm, but much faster. So you started at Wallaroo Labs, and then what, what happened next? So we went through a couple iterations of stuff with them and then decided that in order to meet the needs, we were going to have to build something from scratch and build a framework which was designed for these low latency type use cases, where as part of it as well, um, you wanted to be as efficient as possible. His problem, make a distributed stream processing framework something that can take a fire hose of events and perform customer-specific calculations on them. But the latency needs to be less than a millisecond, and the calculations might be CPU-intensive. Who would need something like this? The initial use case was risk systems for Wall Street banks. A, a risk system could be one which runs alongside automated systems and analyzes the trading output coming out of the out of the automated system to make sure it looks within some realm of reasonable and could then shut down trading, for example. There's a whole bunch of different type of risk things. Um, perhaps like the most famous is, have you ever heard the Knight Capital story? No. So Knight Capital went out of business because an automated system started doing trades that it wasn't supposed to do due to a, a configuration push to production that went wrong in, in the space of 45 minutes, put them out of business. This stream processor needs to answer queries in a millisecond, 99.99% of the time, median response time in the microseconds, and it needs to be able to receive hundreds of thousands of requests per second. It needs to be fast enough to pull the plug on a high-frequency trading system that's gone off the rails. So what would you do? What language or framework would you think about using? Let's play along and see if you end up where Sean and his team did. We spent a good amount of time specking out, this is what we think this needs to be able to do. And you know, looking at what is the language or libraries that we want to build this on top of. I mean, the number one way to do low latency is to cut down on network hops. 
That's that's like one of the first big things. So even though it's a distributed stream processor, you know, we wanted to be able to do as much processing as possible on each machine and cut down on the number of network hops you'd have to have. Network calls are just slow compared to direct memory access or inter-process communication. You can't scale out to speed up latency as you're just adding more network hops. The more you can do on one machine, the faster your distributed processing system is going to be. Maybe this is the reason that Storm isn't a fit here. So how come how come Storm can't handle this? Storm wasn't designed for these uh, systems, which basically had to be very efficient um, and very low latency. Storm and, and a lot of the other um, Apache big data projects are designed, but particularly Storm, more as a parallelization engine than a, a low latency like data processing system. So like if, if you look at like the early things of Storm, you'd be like, here I have uh, I have some algo, some compute transformation I need to do, and I need to be able to run it on like 50 machines because it's it's it won't run fast enough on my machine. And you know, in some ways being a bit of a real-time replacement for something like Hadoop, right? Um, mm-hmm. which again is the same type thing, which is, which is a, you build that very differently when you're mostly concerned about, I just want to parallelize this so I can get it done as compared to, Hey, I need to get this done within like, you know, like a couple milliseconds, right? Like a lot of, a lot of the things we do for like bank clients that we're looking at, uh, 99.99% of requests had to be processed in one millisecond or less, right? Um, oh wow! Right, I mean, you're so you're talking about systems like that, and that's just not something that like Storm was built to do. Storm was built to do stuff where you're talking about, you know, probably uh, depending on your depending on your thing, your you know your median latencies are going to be in tens of milliseconds, probably. Um, if it's a small thing, it might be single digit milliseconds, but you're not really looking at, hey, we want to have, you know, like 15 microseconds be our, our median latency for a lot of the stuff that we're doing. Um, it, so, I mean, it just wasn't designed for that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I mean, if you, were, if you were designing it for that type of low latency, you wouldn't use closure, for example, right? You know, writing uh, low latency stuff for the JVM in general is is difficult. And if you write it like a normal Java program, which in a lot of ways uh, Storm was written like a normal Java program, uh, you're going to have a lot of object allocations, which is going to involve a lot of memory pressure. You're going to involve a lot of garbage collection. Um, closure for how it does stuff makes that worse. Um, and those are going to be problems for, for building something like what we built with Wallroom. And a variety of reasons. It's they didn't set out with the goal of building a system like that, so they made choices which wouldn't result in a system like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess I don't know this area, but like a lot of these projects that are on the JVM, like they all end up kind of manually managing memory with some sort of off heap tricks. If I understand, if if you're trying to go, if if latency is a real concern, you're doing stuff like that. Yeah, I mean like. For like a, a great project, if people are interested in like high performance Java stuff and, and in a code base, which is pretty easy to follow, uh, the Aaron pro- the Aaron project, uh, which is a uh, which is a message broker 
um, which does stuff over its own custom UDP that uh, Martin Thompson is one of the big people behind. That's that's a great project to look at for doing that type of stuff on the JVM. But it's definitely not normal JVM programming at that point. So I think like if I were, I, let me take the sample of like backend developers out there and and I pull one out of a hat and I ask them to build this. I think like depending on the age, probably a lot of people would go with C++ to build something like this. Um, we definitely considered C++. Um, I've done a lot of C++ programming in my life. I don't think I'm good enough to do it with C++. Um, I wrote, I, so when I, was, when I was really learning and doing a lot of uh, high-performance C++ stuff in the 90s, and high mm-hmm. performance C stuff then is entirely different than high, what we were doing for high, that we needed high performance with C then you could just write it in plain old Java fashion now and be completely fine. Like, you know, oh. the, the, it, the, the definition of high performance has definitely changed over the course of time, you know? Um, but, but, uh, doing this stuff in C, um, it was all, it's, it was all, you know, multi threaded. And in order to go fast, you need to not copy memory, which um, which is also where you get into trouble because you can have data races, et cetera, where you need to be careful about how you're sharing memory um, mm-hmm. and to make sure that you don't corrupt the memory, to make sure that thread one over here doesn't free memory that thread two is still using it, it is a variety of, of ways you go about doing this usually with locks, et cetera, these types of things. And still even, even with doing those, an awful lot of people like the number one way that you see bugs of this usually come about is seg faults is, is what happens. Boom, program crashes, segmentation fault. Um, and so like a lot of people develop different rules for how you can share mm-hmm. memory or what you can't. Um, I had this whole set of rules that were in my head. Um, but uh, in the end, you can use tools like Valgrind, use fuzzers and everything to try and find where you've violated those rules. But in the end, it's on you to carefully follow those rules. And if you don't, and you build an awful lot of code and you're not regularly testing it with stuff where it's going to find your one little mistake that you made at some point, um, you know, the further in the past that that mistake was, the harder and harder it's probably going to be to find. And um, we didn't think that uh, we could hire enough good C++ people uh, to be able to do that. And so while we still kept C++ around as an option, we really wanted to have something that had more memory safety like baked into it where the compiler itself would say, hey, that's problematic, right? Like, yeah. and, and that's something, you know, that Rust, you know, is definitely in part, you know, one particular approach to trying to solve that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, I think when people start talking about data races, Rust Rust people talk about this all the time, right? Yeah. This is a feature they bring to the table. And, so did and, you did you consider Rust? It, we did. And Rust was a strong consideration. The issue there was that there was no high performance runtime uh, to do what we would, what we wanted to do. And we have to write that runtime. Our estimate was, and again, this is an estimate where we spent we spent probably a week to two weeks trying to spec out, you know, roughly in 
not even t-shirt size, bigger than t-shirt size, how long we thought it would take. And we thought it would probably take anywhere from 12 to 18 months to have a really good, solid runtime. So what's a runtime? Like a scheduler? Every language has a runtime. They just don't necessarily know it. So, I mean, a runtime is a, a number of things. It's, it's, it's memory management. Um, it's, it's, it's a scheduler. Um, what, what your particular runtime provides might, might vary. But yes, definitely scheduling. Um, scheduling and memory management are probably the two biggest ones. Um, if you're doing high-performance stuff, then also um, uh, you're probably going to be doing stuff uh, asynchronously in some type of thing or some type of message passing type thing so you can hand stuff off. Maybe you'll be using channels like Go does or, or something like that. But then, okay, what's the communication mechanism between threads as well, right? And having, having something for that. Yeah. Because it seems like um, you need a runtime for handling concurrency. The thing that the thing that people don't think about usually when they're first starting out uh, with stuff until they've worked in a ecosystem for a language that doesn't have a set concurrency model that comes with it is what you end up having is you end up having different communities that develop where they have a concurrency model and there are libraries that work with that concurrency model, right? So like uh, Rust has Tokyo now, which is a specific mm -hmm. concurrent. There's a concurrency model that's built into that. And uh, libraries that might be written to use a entirely different concurrency model are not going to work with Tokyo probably and vice versa. You see this with in C++ where there's a whole bunch of different like, you know, concurrency libraries and they just they don't work. They don't work well together, you know. And if, if they do, they're usually stepping on each other and that becomes a problem for high performance. Yeah, like I think of, like I'm a Scala developer day to day mainly. And there's like ACA people who do kind of actor stuff. And then there's other people who do other stuff. And there's, yeah. a, there's a number of communities, I guess. So like the JVM is a runtime and it provides a memory model for how memory works. And it yeah. provides uh, a basic concurrency model, which is, hey, you build on top of threads, and then you use locking primitives in order to do this. Um, and, uh, and, and Akka um, wants to, in the end, have a different model that they want to build on top of that. But um, I don't know, have you done much uh, Akka programming? I haven't actually. Okay. So one of the things that comes up a lot is, ooh, beware of this when you're doing Aka stuff is make sure that you don't inadvertently capture um, values or references to objects uh, and send them from one actor in Aka to another because now you can have uh, two actors that are both able to modify the same data and you now can have data races, et cetera, and everything, which is a problem. And there's not a lot that Aka can do about this because in the end, that is this single global memory space um, is, is something which the JVM allows, right? And if you mm -hmm. want, and you would need a special Aka compiler in order to prevent programs that do that inadvertently from compiling, which, you know, if you're building a library, you don't really want to have like, you know, to have to have, hey, here's my compiler for it. And so this is this is a thing where they're trying to overlay a somewhat different idea of concurrency um, and a runtime idea on top of a different runtime and, and running into some issues there. 
In other words, ACA runs on the JVM, which doesn't have first-class support for actors. You can make it work, but the runtime is thread-based rather than actor-based. Rust, on the other hand, tries to have a very minimal runtime environment. But Sean feels that that means he needs to build these things himself, like a scheduler or air handling, or maybe even garbage collection, which makes me want to ask about garbage collection itself. There's, there's an awesome paper. I was, I, was, I, was, I was thinking before this, I'm like, am I going to get through this without mentioning it? No, I can't get through <laughs> anything that's on this topic without mentioning it. Uh, it's a paper, it's called Trash Day. Um, yeah. and it's, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but, but folks who are listening might not be, um, which is really about how do you get maximum performance out of a Hadoop cluster? Why, why is it called trash day, the paper? Um, well, because it's about, uh, handling garbage, right? When you, when you, when you put out your What's garbage, up? that's trash. You know, like when you live in the suburbs and there's like three days a week when you have to put the garbage out, it's trash day. Yeah. And then it gets taken away. In other words, in a distributed system on the JVM, a GC pause causes a slowdown. Work piles up or work slows down. The paper makes Hadoop faster by having everyone GC at the same time. That's your trash day. So you get more throughput, but you still have latency issues when that GC happens. The point for us is the JVM and its runtime won't work for this use case, even with a performant actor system like ACA. All right, so, so far we've crossed C++ off the list, Rust off the list, and now it sounds like anything JVM off the list. Sean did bring up actors, though, which gives me a clue about the direction he's thinking. And then I assume your concurrency model is going to involve actors of some sort, I guess, right? Uh, the concurrency model that I really like is that you have uh, something, uh, you start with how many CPUs you have, um, and mm-hmm. you have a single thread that does work per CPU. You lock it to those CPUs, and you don't let anything else use the CPU. And if you want to go really fast, uh, you, you can use something like CSET to actually set like those CPUs apart so that Linux won't schedule um, anything on those at all. They're purely for your program. It can start up, and it can have like, 12 CPUs that are all for itself, and you have one thread per CPU, which will be responsible for running work, and you have something, and it could be actors, um, whatever your abstraction is over the top of it, but you give people some unit of parallelism of concurrency that they can program to, and that's that's the model because, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in making things go fast. But yes, uh, I happen I happen to like actors. For me, it's a really good conceptual model. Although I've seen that lots of people definitely struggle with trying to figure out how to model things for actors, which, in a lot of ways, I think is because actors are really all about doing things asynchronously. And the way most folks have been taught uh, to do programming is in a very synchronous fashion. And thinking about really thinking about concurrency where things are happening asynchronously um, can be really difficult for a lot of folks. All right. That comment makes my mind go straight to this runtime that was built from the ground up to use actors for concurrency. I guess if you're going to embrace actors, like, I mean, Erlang must have been a consideration. Yes. Erlang is consideration. Uh, We didn't think that we could get the performance that we needed out of Erlang. Erlang was designed more for consistent latencies rather than consistently low latencies with lots of throughput. 
right? Which is slightly different. I mean, one of the great things about about Erlang is if you graph like what your latencies normally are, they're just flat in a way that you don't get from like the JVM in general because of like garbage collection strategies that are commonly used on like the JVM. Whereas uh, the garbage collection strategy on Erlang is very different with the message passing and everything. It results in very consistent performance all the time. It's just that Erlang was not designed to be a high performance language. The throughput isn't there. But yeah, Erlang was something we definitely considered. Uh, more than one person who was on the team had uh, prior, in some cases, large amounts of uh, Erlang experience. It just won't hit your like one millisecond. Uh... What? You can, you can, but it might not hit your your thing where like uh, we were doing one millisecond at the 99.9 percentile while processing 3 million messages a second in a virtualized environment in AWS. We probably wouldn't be doing that that amount of throughput with that latency. Like that was, that wasn't going to happen. Like the per core amount of computation that you could do with Erlang is in general going to be less than what you would do with C or, or C++. Because again, it had different goals when it was, when it was, when it was designed. So it seems like Erlang might not be a fit, but there is this company called Basho that makes a really fast distributed database all using Erlang. For us, um, when we were looking at doing stuff for Wallow, we really liked um, actors. Like actors work well for us for how we think about things and modeling them. And so Erlang was a natural like thing that we were interested in. So it was, let's go talk to the folks that we know at Basho and go, here's what we want to do. Do you think that Ur- you think we'll be able to easily get Erlang to do that? And the answer that came back was, we love Erlang, but no, no, we don't think we're <laughs> going to be able to make Erlang do that easily, you know. All right, so not C++, not Erlang, not Rust, not Java, not Scala, not Akka. So I'm running out of guesses. Let's just cut to the chase. So um, very little of, of interest has ever happened to me on, uh, on LinkedIn. But uh, Sylvan, um, I've known Sylvan since he was he was 16 and I was 17 when we met. And But we hadn't talked for a number of years because Sylvan's very bad at email. And I sent him an email and he never replied. So I assumed I'd done something to irritate him. And uh, I didn't hear from him until he sent me a LinkedIn message that said, hey, look what I built. What he had built, what Sylvan Klepsch had built was Pony, the love child of Erlang and Rust. No data races, shared memory without copying, and all based around first-class actors and something called reference capabilities. The first thing I think of is, I've never heard of this language pony. It cannot be a legit choice to bet a company on. But Sean sees it differently. I'm just, I'm imagining this, right? I'm imagining Mm -hmm. the story. And I just imagine you're like, oh, we're, you know, Erlang, it's used in production. Lots of people use it. The people who really know it say it doesn't fit. But you're like, actually, the guy I knew when I was 16 built something that I've never heard of. Let's use that. So if I hadn't known Sylvan, right, then Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have heard of Pony and it wouldn't have been a consideration. But I mean, like one of the other serious considerations was that we use C++ or we use Rust. And so... In a lot of ways, I mean, I mean, we were very nervous about picking. We sort of dipped our toes in, but you know, it was 
that compared to like Rust and writing our own one from scratch is the, is the big thing, the biggest consideration there. But Rust had a bigger community at the time, but Rust was still a very, very, very small community then, like really small. It's, it's, yeah. pick, it's picking up now, but even though it's got like a huge amount of mind share on like, you know, things like Hacker News or whatever, like the actual community itself is really small when you compare it to a lot of languages. I'm pretty sure that I know way more Scala programmers than I do Hacker News programmer. I'm, I'm sorry, Rust programmers at this point. Hacker News programmer, that is for sure a Freudian slip. But anyways, Sean chose Pony, a language written by his high school friend. Some might say that is a huge risk, especially since the whole company was this product. I think we need to learn a little bit about Pony to understand this choice. And then we'll come back around to, did this work out for Sean and Wallaroo Labs? So what did you get out of Pony? Uh, so we got a compiler which uh, won't let you create data races. Um, will uh, allow you to share memory in a concurrent system in a way that's safe, so that you don't have to do copies. Um, to allow you to go faster, um, and we got a runtime which met our general idea of how we would want to go about writing both a runtime uh, in terms of scheduling and. Uh, basics for memory allocation uh, so that we didn't have to spend that 12 to 18 months writing our own. So you mentioned fixing compiler bugs. Yes. I mean, that that would frighten me from, from wanting to take on uh, a language, I guess. I, I think that is a thing that should frighten you. It should, it should <laughs> certainly be. You should go into that with eyes wide open, right? Um, and all of us who worked on uh, Wallaroo in the early days have a bit of scar tissue where even though even though none of us had hit a compiler bug in forever, we were still like, like, is that a bug in my code or is that a bug in the <laughs> compiler? That was that thought would cross your mind all the time because it gotten in there. Um, it, at least part of the way I, I, I look at it is, is yes, Pony was definitely unproven technology. And and for whatever your definition of unproven is an awful lot of things are still unproven that a lot of people are, are comfortable with now. Um, I think, but like one of the things that people don't think about when deciding like, Oh, I don't want to use that thing because it's unproven is that if their alternative is build it yourself, right? Your thing yeah. that you're building is also unproven. Right. Yeah. Um, and it becomes a matter of certainly building it yourself. You're going to probably understand the thing much better if you build it yourself. Um, which is why when we took we took on um, building in Pony, we considered that the language, the compiler, and the runtime were part of our project. This was code that we were starting from, and we were looking at it as: is this like? Imagine that we're starting our thing right here. Are we comfortable mm. with this being part of our code base, right? And the fact that it was such and still is such a really nice, clean C code base for like the core implementation of stuff um, was something that we were, you know, that made us comfortable. Um, there are an awful lot of things that I've worked in the code bases of over the years where I would not be able to, to make that statement, you know, where it's just like a jumbled mess. Um, and, and it would be a bad idea to take that thing on as a core part of a core part of your thing. Right. 
Um, so that, I mean, that that's that's really dependent there. But it's like, hey, if like part of the choice is is we're going to do this in Pony and we're going to potentially have compiler bugs versus we're going to build an entirely new runtime in Rust and Lord knows how many bugs we're going to have in like our runtime. Like eh, the compiler, the, the likelihood of compiler bugs, you know, no longer becomes as much of an issue when you look at it as a, as a trade-off between those things. Yeah. It's interesting that you, you know, you successfully embraced Pony because I have to assume that there's limited uh, packaging support in Pony. Oh, oh, oh yeah. I mean, it's right there on the website. It's like, hey, battery's not included. You know, you're, you're, writing, you're writing almost everything. And if you're concerned with performance, you're probably going to write almost everything anyway, and at least anything that's going to be in a hot path. So that becomes much less of an issue. But, you know, if you just want to get your machine, if you just want your machine learning thing up and running, you know, it would be the, be the wrong thing to use. One of the things Pony is famous for is this quote from Sylvan Klepsch, Sean's LinkedIn buddy. Let's paraphrase it. Basically, programming languages are tools. They're not, it's not about ergonomics. It's not about developer experience. It's not about all the things that we normally talk about. It's about getting the job done, right? For for whatever that means, it's it's a, it's a it's a means to an end. Yeah, it's yeah. it's an interesting perspective, right? Nobody, nobody, nobody. When we're designing pony or anything, is like, oh, let's make it ugly for whatever we think ugly might be. But ooh, whatever it is that that gets, I I almost I almost made fun of of like you know the 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 developer like experience UX people for a moment, which is which is bad i was i just would have fallen into making fun of it because i just don't understand it i i there there is something that happens for those people when they're using a language that they that they love in this type of way like ruby that i just don't understand right in in the same way that i have a friend who's really who like who like ruby drives him up the wall and he just can't stand it he finds it horrifying to work with for, for reasons i also don't understand to me it's just like well i wish it had more things to tell me up front that I was making an error, but you know, yeah, it's a tool. I get it though. Like I, I do get the beauty perspective, right? Like there's like the, the Haskell like definition of, of like quick sort and it's really small and it just looks like a spec, you know, then they're like, well, this actually doesn't work at the performance level. So then there's like an optimized version where they have to like, you know, do a bunch of stuff and then it, it becomes much less, parsable as a human right i suspect when people talk about beauty they're talking about like hey this very concisely reflects what i would like the machine to do perhaps yes but i think then that that, i mean that's certainly in the eye of the beholder right because one person is just like i want it to sort a list the other person is is i want this to be sorted in in is an efficient means possible therefore i i know i i have a pretty good idea that doing it like this this and this rather than letting a compiler decide will result in better stuff and so i mean at that point that could be beauty you know i mean it's it's like it's a matter of context and where you are on a the ladder of abstraction or whatever it is for what you're really interested in i think that there's even a bigger point of a wider than performance if you have a really hard problem, you have to optimize for solving that hard problem. Does that make any sense? Um, I believe I understand what you're saying. Yes. I mean, y- your hard problem is is your primary thing. You want to solve the hard problem. 
uh, ergonomics is going to be somewhere down the line. Like ergonomics is never the top thing for probably anyone. There, there are other things that are first. For me, beautiful is I've written you, you work. Hey, what about like, like who should I mean, use Pony? Like, so you're behind Pony now. I believe you're, are you like, you're invested in the language? Who, who should use it? I mean, Pony particularly is good at doing things which are operating over TCP, over a network. If you were in a bank and you needed to like tap into an Ethernet card in order to like monitor stuff that's flowing by to make sure that there's not something unusual happening on your network, Pony is great for that. If you're building like, uh, if you're building like network servers that need to be high performance, then then Pony's excellent for that. Like the the concurrency concurrency model and the fact that once you get over the hump that a lot of people have of having to do everything asynchronously, the performance is usually much easier to get in Pony than in an awful lot of other languages that I've ever worked with. I do also think that from a non, um, from a not trying to get stuff done at work standpoint, that Pony is an excellent language for people who want to learn language runtime stuff or just because Anybody who comes in the Pony community right now and wants to contribute, we will happily accept them as long as they're not a dick. <laughs> we will help them and we will teach them and get them so that they're productive. I spend most of my time at this point not working on new features and stuff for everything, but trying to figure out what can I do to make it easier for people to, to be able to contribute to Pony. Like That's where I yeah. spend most of my Pony time these days is, is look, if... I can eventually, over the course of a year, make it so that five new people came in and they're contributing stuff. Eventually, that's going to be better than my spending all of that time just being an individual contributor. In other words, Pony is great. Literally, if you want Sean himself mentoring you. I jumped on the Pony chat. Sean is just there answering people's questions, helping them out, along with several others. That's the beauty of a small community. It's also great if you want to work on a real but understandable compiler or runtime. If you've built a toy language in the past or played around with runtimes and are looking to continue that learning, it seems like honestly a great fit. It is a, it is a really clean code base for implementing compiler features, for implementing runtime features. And we have, a, we have an RFC system where people can bring up ideas for changes that they would want and, and have them discussed. I don't expect, you know, that a lot of people would sit down and be like, Pony is the perfect thing for what I need to do for like my job because yeah. it's designed, it's designed to do things which the vast majority of programmers are not getting paid to do. They're not getting paid to write reasonably low down on the stack type stuff that needs to be, uh, handling a lot of stuff concurrently and do it safely, easily, and in an efficient fashion. That's just not what most people are paid to do. Like even when people are writing backend system stuff, right? If that's what people were being paid to do, then Rails wouldn't have taken off. Yeah, but there's some fun problems down down there, low in the but stack, I guess. There are, and a lot of people yeah. really enjoy working on it. But yeah. in the end, it is compared to the compared to the broader like sum of what everybody's doing, it is a niche problem. There will never, ever, ever be a pony community that's as big as as JavaScript. It just won't yeah. happen. Yeah, that makes sense. Like how do I how do I know if something's you know, that something that seems unproven is worth the risk? A lot of a lot of engineers that I know 
I don't think that they follow a very good approach when they're picking tools in general. I don't think that they really stop and think about what their goals are and what they what they really need in order to accomplish those goals, right? It's and, and this isn't just in picking tools, but it's like I have a I have a feature to implement, right? Um, most people usually don't think through what really are the goals of this feature. What are we trying to accomplish? What are we willing to trade off? What is what is important to this? What is not important to this? So we started with a problem, the problem of making something like an order of magnitude faster than the existing solution, than Apache Storm. We chose our tech stack and it was built. There's one thing that we're missing to wrap up our case study. All right, sorry, back to Pony. Um, tangents, so like, you like tangents, yeah. I like tangents. <laughs> so like, did it work? So you guys took Pony, you you built, or you, you were going to build a Storm, uh, something better than Storm, right? Lower latencies. How'd it go? I don't like to use the word better because we had different goals, right? Um, I've, I've been, I've also, for everything I've said earlier on about languages, note, I didn't say, oh, that's a bad language or anything. It's the goals were different, right? But for what we were trying to accomplish, it was a much better tool for those type of scenarios that we built it for than, than Storm was. Yeah. Going back to, to what I find beautiful, right? Um, yeah. About a year ago when we were at Wallaloo Labs, we put a system into production for uh, Pubmatic. They're an ad tech company. That was the first system to go into production that was going to be taking a ton of data, like lots and lots and lots of data for the system we built. And we're all like, we all worried about like, what's our on-call thing going to be for this, et cetera, and everything, right? It's almost a year later, not a single issue. Oh, wow. There was one issue, and that was when somebody went to upgrade something and didn't follow the upgrade instructions. But for the stuff that we built, that was processing like at peak about 80 million calculations a second, handling hundreds of thousands of uh, incoming HTTP JSON requests a second, right? With pack full of data, which would blow up into like 80 million calculations a second. Running for a year, not one teeny tiny little issue. That, that to me, that's beautiful. That's, that's, that's beauty to me, right? So Sean focused on the features of his hard problem. That led to a seemingly crazy solution using Pony. But it actually made sense, and it worked out. He had to minimize latency and maximize throughput, so he needed something very performant. He needed to minimize network hops and copying, and he had to do everything async. Maybe you have a use case for Pony. Maybe not, but I bet you have to make technology decisions where the right choice could save or sink a project. And that's what this story was all about, choosing the right tool for the job. I hope you like this case study. If you have a case study about a project you worked on, let me know, adam at corecursive.com. I think we need more um, of these case studies so that we can all learn from them. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.